Welcome to Kiana's Conversations. I'm delighted to be able to welcome Jill Wilkinson to today's podcast. Jill is an associate with Kiana's, but is also a serving senior officer in the Army Reserves. In today's podcast, we're going to be exploring aspects such as mission command and commander's intent and explore what lessons leaders can learn from modern military leadership. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Kiana's Conversations today uh, to Gillian Wilkinson, who is a colleague of mine at Kiana's, but has her own incredible uh, career, which I'm going to invite you, Gillian, maybe just to kick off today by telling us a little bit about your career, what you do before we start to explore this idea of the links between military leadership practice and its potential within the um, the business world and the organisation world beyond the military. So, Gillian, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, first of all, that would be really helpful. Good morning, Dawn. Um, well, yeah, I, um, I joined the military, as you've implied. I, I went to the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, after I graduated, graduated with an English degree, so it wasn't something which was, was um, specifically being sought um, by the Army, but then... Um, you know, the ability to create a rational argument and, and see balance, I think, has probably been uh, something that did train me well for a career in the army. Um, I stayed in the regular army uh, for about eight years and, and I left when I had children. Um, you know, many years ago, it was not as as, um, as straightforward to, to stay in and deploy at busy times uh, with children as, as it is now. It's still not easy. Um, but I then did join the Army Reserve. And, and one of the jobs uh, that I that I did in that context was I worked as an assessor of leadership potential at the Army Officer Selection Board, which is where people go selected for their place at Santer. So I'd been through it as a candidate and I went back there and was trained to become an assessor of leadership potential. And, and then when I was ready to, to move into a, a civilian career, that became was such a passion for me. I you know, was able to, to see the, the doors that could be opened up to people when their talent or their, their traits towards leadership um, could be identified and developed. And that, that much of my work in the civilian sector now um, lies within leadership development and I've worked in, in a number of organisations in a, in a supporting role to try to develop leadership quite a lot with the, with the NHS, um, but in, in a number of other organisations as well. And I'm delighted to have joined the Kianas community to work with other people who are as passionate about, about developing leadership as well, I am. We, we're, as, we're as delighted as you are to have you with us. And the contribution that you're making, again, is, is quite exceptional. But I'd, I'd like you just to bring your, your career a little bit more to life in terms of maybe some of the roles that you had within the regular army and, and, and your progression in terms of, of through the ranks in that space. And Well, the first job out of Sandhurst for, for all junior officers who, who come in at that level um, is, is being a troop commander or a platoon commander. And, and typically that would be, uh, uh, be known as being in command of about... 30, 35 people. In the area I went into, the Royal Logistic Corps, actually, our troops were much bigger. And, and within a year of, of commissioning from Sandhurst, 
I was on operations back in Northern Ireland and in the, in the mother country for me. Um, and I had a troop of 75 people. So um, a fairly, you know, a, a, a command, even at that level, your most junior command responsibility. Command's a huge privilege, but also, you know, um, a, a huge responsibility. So you're responsible legally for um, the actions of the people who, who work for you. And um, but you're also, you know, it, it sounds quite, it quite sounds quite processy. There's a legal responsibility there, as I say, but it's also very much like a parental responsibility. You know, I was only 26 years old, um, and some of my soldiers were twice my age. Some of them were were barely out of school. Some of them were 18 or 19, and and part of the responsibility there is really getting to know your people really well because only by getting to know them um do you really know how to lead them i think and 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 we went there from our base in germany back in the days when when the british army had a substantial um force based in germany and of course for for married soldiers out there they were accompanied by their families their spouses and so you know it was no nine to five job you know you had responsibility for the welfare of your troop 24 hours a day um, seven days a week um, and I say a huge privilege great fun a great challenge but also quite a responsibility um, so it was always good to have lots of peers and, and a chain of command above you to run to for for help when you needed it yeah well, we, well I think we're going to explore that as we go forward so so your your current rank in the army if you could just tell us your current rank yes yeah, so I'm a, I'm a colonel now and I recently moved from being the Deputy Commander Reserves at the Royal Military Academy Centre. So it was great to go back there in a in, in a in a staffing role as opposed to um, having gone through it as a as a cadet. Um, but I moved recently to be the Colonel of the Royal Logistic Corps Reserves. And um, so I look after um, the 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 needs, the training needs, some policy, you know, and clearly that's been in a time during COVID. So I'm not getting out and seeing enough of of the soldiers as I would like to, but looking after the things that are specific to the the, the trades, and there are you know, 13 different trades in, in the Royal Logistical Reserve, everything from uh, drivers, uh, we have some bomb disposal, although that's generally a regular function, uh, uh, port and maritime trades, and so a huge diverse group of people, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to, to things improving so that I can get out, see them doing the jobs, see what is preventing them doing the things that they want to be able to do better and being able to influence and lever some of those um, resources to try to improve their lot. Right. Well, I, I, as, as ever, you know, I, I'm, I'm staggered in terms of the responsibilities that you've had and carried through your time. But I think it's important that we maybe explore this area before we, we start to proceed, which is about language. And there are there are many people who have a difficulty with any reference in terms of a leadership role to the idea of command. You know, and you, you use the word, you know, troop commander and being in command. And I think for those of the, us who are outside the military, the perception then is, is about, you know, standing, standing on the, the parade, shouting at men. Uh, typically men giving them instructions telling them what to do can can you can you bring to life what command really means in a military sense an army sense um to, to maybe challenge that perception that we have yes i hope so and um, of course i think 
leadership exists at all levels of the army and, and at, at, at almost all ranks. You know, a lance corporal commands a half section, a corporal commands a section. Um, you know, a, a, a troop commander, I commanded a troop, I've commanded a regiment. Um, and command is a specific appointment in the military. Um, you know, so as a, as a major in my background, in my corps, a major commands a squadron, you know, a group of anything between sort of 90 to 150 people typically. Now, there will be other majors in that regiment. There will be probably four commanders and they will be commanded by a lieutenant colonel. But there will be other majors who are not in command positions. But it's the command positions which have the, um, you know, we move in and out of them typically in our career. And um, we move between command and staff. And um, but command is where you have the, the individual has a, an authority, an accountability, a responsibility legally vested in them. So would it be right to say, actually, command is a noun than a verb? Mm -hmm. It's both. It's used yeah. in both contexts. Yeah. Yeah. But I think certainly the way you're talking in terms of dispelling myth, yeah. um, you know, a commander doesn't usually bark commands by any means. Um, a commander has the, the, as I say, the legal responsibility, but oddly, by having that authority, by having that legal responsibility and accountability, my experience in comparison to civilian organisations that I've worked for is that they, they need far less to apply those sort of uh, more physical or verbal um, uh, trappings that would be, which would be forced leadership, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because the hierarchy is so clear, because it's utterly clear who is in charge, um, that actually frees people to ask questions and to work because it's not seen as being a challenge to that authority. I think this is fascinating because I, I think, again, there will be people out there who will say, well, it's very easy to be a leader in the army because... If somebody does something wrong, you know, I can I they I can I can punish them, I can lock them up, I can do lots of so it, it you know, can you dispel that 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 myth? I mean, legally, legally it's true, but of course nobody wants to be at that point. And and I would hope that our style of leadership in the army is much more about leading than command. There are times when you have to command. I think. I mean, the, the best way to explain the need for command it, it is the ultimate responsibility that goes with it. You know, you don't ask people to step across the line into a life-threatening or a, a life-threatening situation. That is a command, but actually, also, you want them to be following your leadership into those positions, into places of danger, places of threat, and um, so there's there's always a balance there. And there are times when our pomp and circumstance looks very commanding, doesn't it? You know, and and of course there are times when orders are given. But in my entire army career, and you know, I've spent twenty five, whether it be full time or part time, I think maybe twice or three times I've had to use formal discipline. And mm. um, you know, and compared to perhaps when I was teaching, you know. <laughs> Formal discipline was used much more frequently what? because, you know, it's a volunteer army. People want to be there. They want to do their job. And it's the role of the leader or the commander 
and the commander um, to make them want to be there and not to transgress or need to be ordered. You know, that orders are necessary to be clear, to be clear who's responsible for each task. We give orders, but they are rarely barked in the way that I that, that I sense and certainly yeah. I, I've been questioned. Well, I, I think you're really helping to clarify that. And uh, um, again, I think it's in really in 25 years, you know, three or four times, I think there are many people who have worked in public service that have had to had to employ you know disciplinary procedures far more frequently than that and again it's a to use your language it, work is still a voluntary exercise no one's forcing me to work in that environment mm-hmm. so i think that the area that i'd like to spl- explore this morning is the idea the concept i believe called military doctrine and again this word has connotations of doctrine it's doctrinaire it's all about instruction you will do you will do you will do this um, again, can we start to, to tease that out in terms of, of language, in terms of this idea of military doctrine? How, how, would, you, how would you represent it? I, th- I mean, I think the definition is something about it being a set of beliefs, you know, a set of beliefs. But, but we often would, um, would say doctrine is what is taught. And, and it's not fixed, though. I think, you know, we have doctrine, we have ways of approaching things. We have a common understanding of principles of of warfare, but also principles across all sorts of other aspects, including how to command, you know, how to lead. Um, And and they're they're understood. There are principles, there are codes, there are standard operating procedures. Um, You know, these all overlap with each other. And I think doctrine the way of doing that is accepted and known is nestled within the philosophy of mission command. And I know we'll we'll, we'll probably talk more about that because I know it's an area you're really interested in. But mission command gives freedom. But of course, you can't have a free for all, you know, resources, context, nothing permits ultimate freedom in terms of how to act in a situation. But what doctrine is, it is one of the... um, I'm not sure if constraints is the correct word, but it's the handrail. Doctrine is the is the set of guiding principles, which mean that what you say and do is is more easily understood by your colleagues and your subordinates and your and your superiors, um, because there's an accepted norm in the way of approach. That doesn't stop innovation, you know. It doesn't stop innovation, but of course. There is a concern that it could put a break on innovation sometimes because by by training, if we if we move to the connotation of indoctrinization, yeah. um, it does train people to think in a similar way. Yeah. And, and there's a risk in that that you do stifle some innovation. Yeah. And that's something that the, the military's investing quite a lot of thought in now about how you you maintain that shared understanding whilst also empowering and permitting people. So as you say, you, you've you've worked both within the military and externally, and with other organisations. What benefit do you think might organisations outside the military um, gain from perhaps exploring this more explicit idea of sets of beliefs, or um, developing a clearer handrail or a set of guiding principles, perhaps more so than than they they do currently. I, I think, I mean, it's only converse, but by having those, you can then actually delegate more easily. 
you can free people up to act within those boundaries or or at least within those concepts. So it can actually be a, a tool that allows leaders to release some authority. You, know, you, you, you release the, you can give somebody a task to do. You know that they will understand certain parameters around it. You can give them your authority to act on your behalf by giving them that task. But actually, you always maintain the responsibility and the accountability. But you can afford to do that because you know they understand the context and they understand the accepted approaches. Now, so, yeah. Yeah, you, you said something in here, which I, I and again, from my homework. So with apologies, I'm just going to quote these three things, because for me, actually, this was very helpful. And again, if anybody listening is interested, you can find these um uh, they're available on the web in terms of identity, and you just search for Mission Command British Army. Um, so authority is the power and right to give orders and enforce obedience. I mean, I think that's a, an interesting one in terms of non-military. Responsibility is the ability and obligation to act independently and make decisions. Mm-hmm. And accountability is 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 to um, the expectations to justify action and decisions. So this idea of authority, responsibility, and accountability, you were kind of talking about this nesting idea. Is that something that that those three elements fit together? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think we we do think of those as the the things that are nested within command. And and again, we're back to that difficult word that that may or may not have connotations, but, but you've the commander holds responsibility for those. I say it doesn't mean that they have to do everything themselves. Yes. But by making their intent really, really clear, by making the, the reason why, the purpose really, really clear, they can then delegate the task while giving freedom to people to, to conduct that task in the best way that they see fit in the context that they face, whether that on the ground in the moment moment in the midst of chaos you know and, and we have chaos in training as well as in on operations we have chaos in peacetime and barracks you know you can give people that space to come up with their own way of achieving the task and um, but but the commander still retains the responsibility and the accountability for that i i I think this is very, very helpful because it's almost counterintuitive for those of us outside the military Mm -hmm. that once the the, uh, commander, and let's continue to use this word, um, has given their instructions and directions, the expectation, I think, of those of us outside the military would be you, and it's a classic, I was just following orders. I, I follow orders regardless. I think what you're suggesting is that that is not the case in terms of, so can you bring it to life for us in terms of a, a, a real life example? And we're talking here of, we're talking here of mission command, are we? Is this the, is um, this the overall? Y- yes, I mean, and, and our command, our, our concept of command certainly sits within mission command. And I, I think, I'm trying to think of a <laughs> an example that I, that I can use. Um, well, just take a classic military example, perhaps. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, probably, a, you know, in terms of... Um, uh, delegating a task, the the commander must make sure that they, if they delegate a task to somebody, they, 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 the resource must follow it. You know, the ability to do that, it must be achievable. 
But if it's not, and it must be legal, you know, we have the law of armed conflict. That's another one of the constraints, the, the handrail things that we must work within. Um, we have in the orders process, and, and there is a formal orders process, which is, is, you know, the best way to describe it is in war, you know, where you're given a mission, you're yeah. given a concept of operations, you're told who's working for you, you're told who's, who's to your left, who's to your right, what the unifying effort is. Um, but there's an opportunity to ask questions. There's always that in the military to go back. And then in the planning process, there's another process. There's another sort of subheading where you can go back for critical information requirements. You know, what do I need to know or what more resource do I need enabled to carry out that task that's been given to me? You know, I've gone away and done my planning. It's either not possible because I don't have this resource or perhaps I think that it's not legal or or there's a risk to civilian life or there's a risk to a protected um, cultural um, monument. You know, those sorts of examples have certainly happened in, in you know, the recent wars in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, and, and it would not be unusual at all for even a, a junior soldier to be able to say, well, hold on, sir, hold on, ma'am. Um, have you thought about this? And that kind of brings me back to this idea of hierarchy and the overt command is it's it's oddly freeing because by saying sir or ma'am at the end of that question, they're not they're not um, competing to, to take the leadership. They're not it's not a coup. You know, they're simply using the license they've been given to question things and and. You know, often I've been in situations where that will work, you know, where we do, you know, we rehearse things, you know, back in training. Um, you know, if you were given a, um, you know, if you were if you were tasked to go out and do a recce. So you'd give your orders and then you would have rehearsals and it would be slightly ridiculous. You know, you'd be in a little woodland and you'd make a wee model and um, you'd be going, right, so we're setting off from here and we're going to walk to here, you know, and, and, and instead of covering the 10 miles that you might do in real life, you're covering a meter on the ground. And they say, and then we'll get to here and then we'll do this. And, and you're physically thinking through the processes. Um, you know, and I'm actually relying on a story told by, by, by a, a senior officer who I used to work for in this, you know, and he, and he used to say, you know, and then, and, and then somebody would say, oh, but hold on a minute. When we get there, we'll need to, we'll need to send a message to so-and-so. Now, do we have the right communications equipment to do that? You know, so by rehearsing it, you're thinking through the problems. Mm. You're thinking through the things that might hit you along the way. Um, and again, that's an opportunity for, for everybody in the organisation to say, oh, but what about this? What about that? Have we thought about this? And, and most commanders, I would say, I, 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 would, I think we'd struggle to find any commander who has not adapted their plan because of questioning that's come to them appropriately you know it, it's part of the process is allowing um the bottom-up questioning of 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 resources now really you know if you're under fire from the enemy you know that's not a time to be taking questions you know <laughs> you know you've just get a good got to get on but again that's where our doctrine and that's where the training kicks in because there are default patterns of behavior default actions standard procedures that just kick in, you know. Everybody in the army knows what to do when you come under effective enemy fire. So you dash down, crawl, observe, sights, fire. You, yeah. you, you, um, 
you've introduced this idea about flat structure. I was going to talk about it later on, but let me just take it just now because I think it's it's of relevance here. So there is, there is a strong push towards flat cultures in organisations and uh, almost to get away from the notion of hierarchy and often the army is used as that extreme example of hierarchy. But you, you actually seem to be suggesting that, that hierarchy does, is not getting in the way of innovation and and collective understanding, collective involvement. I will, again, I'm probably relying on somewhat on, on things I've learned from a gentleman called called Philip Mostyn, who, who talks about this aspect really, really well, because um, hierarchy is part of human nature. You know, we all seek to find our position in life, you know, whether that be in, in social constructs, whether it be in the school playground, hierarchy is deeply ingrained in the species as it is in many animal species. Mm -hmm. And and the problem is if if you remove it or if you think you're removing it, Mm -hmm. it's probably still there, but by not being overt and not being labeled and by not having accountability, all sorts of other corruptions go on, don't they? You know, and um, you know, I've, I've done sort of some training with organizations where We've put people in the unusual position, for instance, at the start of an activity of them not having the opportunity to say who they are, what their background is and what their place in the organisation is. Mm -hmm. And that is an incredibly stressful thing for people who want their position in the organisation to be known, you know, and and, um, so I say you remove remove hierarchy at your peril because something will come in and fill that gap. And it might well be a hierarchy that is not the right design, where accountability doesn't fall on the right people, the right people who are trained, the right people who are selected. Um, so, so just accept, I think, that you know, it is part of our human instinct to lead and to be led. You know, we are leaders and we are followers. And uh, have it clearly accountable who is in charge so how, how would you respond to those who would perhaps say that actually leadership should be democratic, that we we actually, you know, everyone should have a voice. You've touched on this, but actually we should make those decisions democratically as an organisation. And actually the leader is only there to, to um, organise that and then to enable that. I see a leader's role more as an interpreter of what's, coming in and and extracting from that what they need to lead their subordinates, but also extracting from that what they need to do to support those above them. And if the, the counterpart, the bit that you articulated before that in terms of a flat structure where decision-making is demographic, that puts a huge responsibility on everybody to know everything you know, to know the strategic context, to know everybody else's job, to know the impact of, of, of technical things that someone else might do. And I don't think most people have the capacity to do that. So we need, to, you know, collaboration is relying on people who have more specialist knowledge and allowing their, them to influence and interpret us. So, you know, work, there's a time for democracy, there's a time for listening, but 
also on the expectation that not everybody can know everything and nor would it be appropriate for everybody to know everything. You know, where do we stop? You know, where, where do we stop to, you know, does the, you know, the, the most junior person in the organisation really need to know what's keeping the chief executive awake at night? Probably not. Mm. Therefore, do they have an equal vote on, on where to take the company? Probably not. I, I find this fascinating. I think we'll we'll um, we'll move towards this space about reluctant leadership, but we'll say, we'll save that. So let, let's explore some of these elements of of mission command. This idea of of mutual trust, I find fascinating within the mission command piece. What what, what would you have to say? What does mutual trust actually mean, and how do we go about establishing it? Mm, well, this is this is one area where I think it is easier in the military, without a doubt. And um, although the model has changed a lot through simply the, the modernization of society, if you think back, you know, the, the army that I joined, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of it based over in Germany, where the whole family lived there. You know, you didn't just work with these people, you lived with them, you socialized with them. You know, you know, to say that it was a family to which you belonged to was was not just a cliche, you know, these were the people who your entire life revolved around. And, and then the other aspect is, of course, the, the, the commonality of training. You know, even though, you know, Sandhurst has changed a lot and, you know, since I went through as a cadet, in many ways, it's still also the same. So every officer in the British Army has got that in common, a shared experience. Every soldier has been through the same sorts of things. Um, and, and so that shared experience, add to that shared values, you know, values which are made very explicit, values which form the, the absolute core of, of the discipline policy. You know, it's, you know, bringing the army into disrepute is probably the most, the most uh, commonly used phrase in discipline. And it's when people don't live up to the values. Um, so that's at one end of the spectrum. You know, we don't have lateral entry yet it may come you know if you join the army you join either as a private or as an officer cadet and 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 you progress from there so that that reinforces those things i've mentioned previously that's more difficult as i mentioned in the modern era you know because soldiers now those who live in 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 um, military provided accommodation they have single rooms uh, they might have kitchens so they don't all eat together in the cookhouse uh, whereas, in, you know, back in my day, they might have all shared six of them in a room together. So, so, so there are there are now challenges in creating that that sense of belonging, that family bit that I mentioned before. But it remains something which, as an organisation, the military um, really does invest in. And it's difficult, isn't it, in an era of um, you know, you know, financial assurance? How do you justify having a a dinner night? You know. What, what would the, the papers talk about, you know, people in their posh uniforms having a, you know, posh dinner night with a regimental service, out, regimental silver out. And of course, we do pay personally for those things. They're not, you know, they're not paid for um, by the public purse. Um, they seem very extravagant, but they're actually really important in creating the ethos and the brand and the sense of um, the sense of being part of something that's bigger than yourself, that's bigger than even your your immediate working environment. It's that unity of of what makes us the same. Yeah, I, 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 this is really speaking to me. I, I'd like to 
pick up then on this idea, because I, I think this connects, and this lovely phrase of disciplined initiative. Um, what, what does disciplined initiative mean? Because I, I think um, in, in a certain sense, it, it, it's an oxymoron, uh, these the idea of discipline and initi initiative often for some people as well, go off and do your own thing. Mm -hmm. But what does disciplined initiative mean? It, it, I mean, it, it's, it's a term much more used by, by the US right. than, than, than the British Army and Doctrine, although I'm sure it'll, it'll find its way through if it isn't already doing so. Um, I mean, my, my interpretation of it is very much nestled within that concept of mission command and, and some of the things I've mentioned already in that, you know, you could say that mission command gives freedom. You know, you get given a mission, you get given the what's required of you, and you get given the why. But it's up to you to work out the how. Mm -hmm. For me, disciplined initiative within that construct is the limit on the how, the left and right of arc in, in terms of in military terms. So that might be conceptual. So it could be linked to what I talked about in terms of the doctrine. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that might not fix behaviour, but certainly limits the extremes of behaviour. It could be a, a discipline that requires you to stay within a physical boundary. Literally, you know, another, another formation has a, a boundary to your left and one has to the right and you, you shouldn't cross it for, for very good tactical reasons, not cross it. And it might be a resource constraint so, for instance, um, we have a concept called main effort. Um, you know, a commander will have a main effort and the resource will follow the main effort. And if you're not on the main effort, you're very unlikely to get additional resources. You know, so, so there's all sorts of implications of, of knowing, knowing where you fall in the plan. So, uh, rules of engagement. You know, when are you permitted to you know, in warfare terms, when are you permitted to fire? Um, the law of armed conflict, the Geneva Convention, all of those things which which require a, a discipline, a, a break, what would otherwise be, could be a free-for-all. Hmm. Um, so, you know, there's... How do some of those elements translate back into the, the civilian world in terms of how, how you either see it working or how you think, how you... So you think it might work or could work? I guess, in, you know, in many organisations, they have similar constraints. So, um, you know, I, you know, in, in the National Health Service, for instance, you know, there will be there will be pathways, there will be evidence based protocols, there will be standing oper standard operating procedures, um, which which are all there for very good reasons. The problem is. Um, I suspect in the military, we would have more freedom to change them given an emergency situation, you know, given or, or, or yeah, that's not saying the NHS can't deal with emergencies. But I guess we're used to adapting and being agile more. You know, mission command allows you agility. It allows you to respond in chaos. Um, in the financial world, you know, legal assurance, compliance, all of those aspects of um of control measures um, will will fit within that sort of disciplined initiative. How close you get to the boundary of overstepping those is, is the command business. You know, that is where 
the commander, the leader, has to judge and constantly be checking their judgment as to how much control they can give and how much they hold close. This you is- can only give it if you trust. You can only give it if you have full trust. Yeah. And you can only give it if the people that you're giving it to are suitably trained and suitably empowered and suitably qualified to do what you're asking them to do. My goodness. I, 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 there is so much potential in here for the world of leadership from many of the fields that, that we work with beyond the military. And, and I think it's contained within this concept of by being clear and, and giving clear commands, and we'll use that word, you actually create conditions which actually frees people up to be agile, to make decisions. Mm-hmm. But without that clarity, without that shared understanding, given by the leader very, very clearly and, and explicitly, that freedom doesn't exist. And without that, without that clarity, people are probably more likely to, to not take risk, to not explore those outer boundaries. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity here in terms of picking these two up. The problem is this language of command, of doctrine, of the, even the language of, I think some people are offended by the idea of subordinates, you know, mm-hmm. that I should be subordinate to anybody else, gets in the way. The idea of I have superiors gets in the way. Um, as opposed to actually saying they're just functions of a structure that's going to work. So let me pick up on this idea of, I think this culture that um, is, is, is very strong in terms of, of the democratic uh, fight against people really struggling to n- not to occupy or to be accused of being a command and control leader pushes them to step back um, in a way that almost makes them reluctant to step into that leadership role because it seems to conform to something that they don't approve of. What advice would you have for an individual or an organisation where there is that kind of vacuum at the top because people just struggle with the whole concept behind giving instructions, taking that, that ultimate responsibility. Yeah, and, and, I do, and I do see that, and I think it's something where the, the culture of the workplace has changed probably in the last 50 or 60 years. You look, you look at the NHS as an example where a matron used to run the hospital and everybody jumped to attention when the matron walked past. You know, probably much in a, in a much more um, something that we would see as akin to the military now, whereas now the language about, you know, control freak, it, you know, yeah, yeah, control yeah. is a bad thing. Yeah. Having power is a bad thing. But somebody's got to make the decisions, haven't they? Somebody's yeah. got to give purpose to others. And if you want to go from A to B, you know, it's a bit like being a parent, isn't it? You know, you know, you don't have children and then say, oh, well, actually, I'm not sure I want to. I'm not sure I want to take the responsibility of of, of getting my children from A to B, whether that be a physical journey or whether that be through childhood to adulthood. You know, somebody's got to step up to that responsibility. And if it's not you, who is it? You know, are you the best person to do it? Are you the best person because you've got the professional competency? Are you the best person because you can communicate the 
intent and that, you know, and the purpose, the thing that unifies your organization. Because if nobody does it, then what does unify your organization? What does give your organization purpose? Mm. And and it, you know, my experience of the military would be that you don't have to be an autocratic barking leader to be in charge. You can still care for people. You can still ask people to do things. I say we use the term orders, but you know, I'm trying to think when I would have last ordered anybody who works for or with me to do anything. You know, I ask them, I say, you know, do you have the capacity to do this now? And if they don't, but I need it done, then I'll say, right, well, what else have you got on? Let's look at our priorities again. What can we what can we not do now so that you can do this? Because this is more important. Well, let me explore something. I'm sure members of the audience would want to hear the answer to this question, which is about, you know, you're, you're a woman with a senior role in the, in the British Army. What, what, what impact are women, do you think, having upon leadership within the British Army? I, um, I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's changing again. You know, we're in a modern, modern time where when I joined the Army, roles were really opening up for women. Um, but the thing that still wasn't open until just a couple of years ago was ground close combat. You know, and actually lots of women were right up and close with the enemy before that. You know, medics in particular, you know, female medics were frequently right, you know, you know, within sight of, <laughs> you know, within reach of physical reach of the enemy. And so it, it wasn't about keeping women out of the front line, um, but it was until recently keeping women out of hand-to-hand combat in the in the front line and and that's changed and there's nothing now in the army that is close to women and culturally that creates a change certainly for the organizations you know infantry regiments for instance who until recently were were mostly the domain of men they will have had women working with them but not not um you know not under the same cap badge in the same situation and i think just like all of the other elements of diversity you know whether it be um you know gender sexual orientation uh, race background just like all of those things um women will think differently you know and the army has probably evolved over hundreds of years to to be established around what men have designed it to be you know that's simply a fact isn't it um, but but it doesn't mean that women aren't influential and we are more and more influential in changing perceptions. And, and it might not just be perceptions, but by changing perceptions, the, you then can change approaches. You can be more innovative because you just see things from a different lens, from a different perspective. Uh, you know, and, and you know, even within the cohort of women within the military, the diversity is huge. Um, so. Um, we we open doors just just as I say, like anybody who comes from an atypical background, you know, um, will add value because we don't know what the future is going to hold. You know, we need people who think in different ways. You know, warfare is not going to be the same in 10 years time as it was 10 years ago. There's no doubt of that. Um, and so we need people who have the freedom of thought and, and just different approaches. What a great message. What a great message. So we're, we're just um, moving towards the end here. I'd like to ask you, 
and this is maybe a, a difficult one, but what do you think would be the, the three principal lessons that leadership outside the military might get from, from you, the, 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 the military world? If there were three things that you think you would, you would really encourage leaders to pick up on, from the work, the leadership um, practice in the military, what, what would they be? Um, I think giving that unity of purpose that I've mentioned before. Um, now, you know, we do that in a very formal way, as I've mentioned, you know, a mission has the purpose included in it. Um, but actually, the, the, the rhythm of communications throughout the military constantly drives home the the purpose of the organization and um it it distills down through where it becomes then cultural you know the intent is 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 bought into because it's so tightly ingrained in the culture and and i think people need purpose you know if you don't have purpose what do you have you know it, it's a bit like this hierarchy thing yes. so I'd say first of all the purpose excellent Secondly, I would I would probably reiterate that thing that I mentioned about hierarchy. You know, don't pretend it's not there. It's, you know, just because people aren't wearing it the way, you know, overtly does not mean that it's not there. It just means that it's not obvious to everybody and therefore it will not be clear who is in charge and who 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 has the authority to make decisions. And I suppose thirdly, then to say, you know, to, to link in from that is decision making. And um, we, you know, in the military, it is not about just making the decision and letting it go. You know, we plan, we analyze, but we're prepared to change our minds as well. You, you'll have heard of the concept of, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a plan. And so we plan and we plan and we plan. We have the luxury of time. Now, it's not that we're not a very busy organisation, but we exist to do something that we're not doing all the time, warfare. And we're increasingly doing more in the, in the softer space around that. Um, but, but planning, and at, that is the stage where you can really bring everybody's views in, you know, by preempting, being proactive, by delegating ruthlessly <laughs> so that it frees the leader the time to think and the time to respond and the time to ask, to ask from their most junior people, what do you think about this? Because if you if you bring that into your planning process, process well enough in advance, then you can really limit the chaos when, you know, when things get tough. And, um, you know, because you've, Oh yes, I've seen this before. We've thought about this before. You know, we know we know we've got options here. Let's go to this one or that one. I so I probably hit four things there, haven't you, I? Rather you, than three. More than, <laughs> more than four, three. But I, I actually, I actually think collectively there, there's some. Just if I, if I may try to summarize this whole notion of unity of purpose, absolutely critical, and that that reinforcing it through the rhythm of communication. I love that. Don't pretend that hierarchy doesn't exist. Embrace it and use it, use it, use it powerfully. And then within this decision-making space, um, connecting it to planning and starting to think about that, but your phrase, delegating ruthlessly. 
ruthlessly, but with disciplined initiative that we picked from earlier on. Uh, and it's, it's this idea of being able to limit the chaos when things get tough. And I think we look at current circumstances and the world is not necessarily going to get any easier. That idea of resilience is critical. But you concluded with this, this concept of leaders disciplining themselves to have the time to ask and the time to listen to then inform the decision-making uh, practice. Uh, honestly, Gillian, again, I cannot thank you enough. This has been exceptionally revealing and I hope others find it as helpful as I have done. Um, as ever, I would always want to give you the last word. Is there anything you'd want to, to add to that? Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Without sounding like I'm trying to recruit, I'd better not. <laughs> well, why not? Um, no, why? no, go ahead. Go on, just say that. Go on, just please. Please just... Um, well, no, I, 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 it does sometimes... Um, I, I find it interesting what external perceptions of the military are like. And, and you sort of touched on it right at the beginning, didn't you? Of You know, um, well, it's easy because you can just discipline people. Um, oh, yes, you can. But 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 certainly the notion of, of you know, the army officer with a white glove inspecting somebody's rifle and, um, you know, you know, those days, well, clearly we do things like that. Um, uh, for for mass parades and Queen's birthday, you know, parades and and the like. Um, but the reality of work in the army is, you know, is collaborative. It's utterly collaborative. Um, you know, we and 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 we rely on the expertise. Actually, this is I'm, I'm introducing a new idea now, which probably isn't a good idea in summary. But our real expertise often sits at the very junior level. You know, I'm, although I'm a logistician by background in the army, I'm a very, I'm very much a generalist. You know, my soldiers were the ones who knew, you know, the the, the capacities of vehicles. I relied on their expertise. Well, let's just conclude on that because it's a beautiful metaphor for what great leadership should be, which is to enable that expertise to actually flourish. Uh, so, um, thank you very much. And again, if you're out there and you'd like to capitalise on on Joel's expertise in the world of leadership, do not hesitate to get in touch. Uh, again, Jolene, thank you very, very much. I hope people enjoy this as much as I did. Thank you. Thanks, Don. Cheers. Cheers.